I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. This week I'm speaking with Colin Burrow, a senior research fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, and long-standing contributor to the London Review. His most recent book is Imitating Authors, Plato to Futurity, and he has a piece in the current issue of the LRV on Ursula Le Guin. It's a review of two books, Ursula K. Le Guin, The Last Interview and Other Conversations, edited by David Stretfield, and a reissue of Le Guin's essay, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction first published in 1986, I think, with a new introduction by Donna Haraway. Hello, Colin, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, Tom. Very good to see you. It's nearly three years since Ursula Le Guin died on the 22nd of January 2018, at the age of 89. She wrote 20 or more novels and over 100 short stories. Her first five novels were rejected by publishers in the 1950s, but her work has now been canonised in Library of America editions. Most of her books would be categorised as science fiction or fantasy, or under the broader and more recent term, speculative fiction. And as you say in your piece, Colin, all fiction asks the question, what if? But speculative fiction generally deals in larger what-ifs about the underlying rules that structure the world. Before Le Guin, the rules that it questioned were usually technological, sometimes political, but less often sociological or social. I think that Isaac Asimov's short story, The Last Question, for example, which he wrote in 1956, has people in the far future hurtling through hyperspace, but they're still a nuclear family. Whereas Le Guin, in novels like The Left Hand of Darkness or The Dispossessed, she changed rules that Asimov may never even have thought about, may never have thought of as that they were rules. So her science fiction that she wrote in the late 60s and the 70s was very different from anything that had come before, wasn't it? Yes, it really was. She imagined the whole of human culture as being a great big expression of what if, I think, and would have wanted to question more or less every aspect of common cultural configurations from the family through to gender. And none of those questions, I think, would really have even occurred to Asimov. And, I mean, she still does the um, scientific speculative kind of fiction she's interested in the technologies by which people talk across the galaxies but those questions are very much subordinate to the question what sort of society is it and what does it mean to leave one society and observe another society that you might think of as being alien so she really i suppose brings anthropology into speculative fiction in a way that i don't think anyone else had done before and and that is I suppose, the core thing that distinguishes her from the prior generation. Her earlier, earliest fiction was perhaps 
a little bit more conventional than that and and you know more concerned to conform to generic categories partly because publishing at that period depended very much on generic categories that was how you were marketed that was how you got a publisher um but as she became more successful the anthropological side of her work came out more and more by those the first novels do you mean the the historical ones because she wrote a series of novels set in an imaginary eastern european country didn't she that's true i I wasn't actually thinking of those but they they're very much um school of tolstoy i suppose no i was thinking more of rakanan's world and the early hainish novels which are um i suppose more more like conventional sf than work from about left hand of darkness onwards and I suppose that's one of those things that when she when she started writing that it wasn't I mean, sort of thinking about the maybe respectful isn't quite the right word, but the, there were these very strict distinctions between categories of fiction and that the, the fantastical in whatever form had not really been seen as an accept, acceptable in serious fiction for for a very long time really. I mean, even with the extent to which Gulliver's Travels became reimagined as a children's book. No, that's very true. And certainly the idea of speculative fiction in the mainstream would have been in, you know, circa 1955, something that most people, as it were, in my position would have laughed at. And that's one of the very great changes that she and and other people of her generation wrought. And I suppose differences from, because the the first books of hers that I read as a child, and I mean, possibly a too young child, were the the Wizard of the first Earthsea novels, The Wizard of Earthsea and the Tombs of Atwood and the Furthest Shore, which I sort of came to expecting something hobbity, I suppose, and which they really aren't. And I suppose nowadays they'd be said to be young adult novels, but I, that again, that's a category that didn't didn't really exist in the late sixties, early seventies, is it? No, it didn't. Uh, it was very much children's books, and I read them. I suppose when they first came out in in the uk and i was too young for them perhaps one remains too young for them in some ways because they are profoundly serious about life and the moral responsibilities of having power so the central figure the um magician ged or sparrowhawk to give him his common name ged is his his sort of secret magical name manages potentially to destroy his world by releasing a dark creature from the underworld in the course of showing off his his magical prowess and that idea of a uh, clumsy magician who nearly destroys everything is i suppose in some ways there in folk tales in in the magician's nephew but i think what the gwyn does with it is create something that's far more than a the kind of children's book that I was generally reading in the in the seventies, far darker, scarier, deeper. And the other thing she's doing as well in the Wizard of Earthsea is creating worlds with an intensity that very few writers for children were doing in that period. I mean, obviously there are magical worlds like the Hobbit and the Narnia books of C.S. Lewis, but I think. Even in Earthsea, Le Guin is thinking about the different islands of the archipelago that um, makes up the bulk of 
Earthsea as having their own completely separate cultures. You know, there are slaving peoples and there are people of different skin colours and people with different social practices throughout that world. And so you're voyaging around some very strange territory. And there are hints of that, I suppose, in in, in C.S. Lewis too. But in C.S. Lewis, the um, cultural differences between the societies he imagines tend to go along with well, should we say, a very strong coding of the white and Christian ones as being better than the non-white and probably Muslim ones. And the Gwyn just gives you cultural variety in that book, along with a sort of deep, dark questioning of magical authority. And they're, quite, they're really shattering books. I think, actually, the, in some ways, the prime book in that first trilogy, although I don't really talk about it in the piece, is The Tombs of Atuan, which does just imagine this underworld of darkness where uh, a high priestess who's had to give up her own identity in order to become high, high priestess worships the ancient powers. And she's supposed to be the most powerful person in this temple, but it increasingly becomes apparent that she's very far from the most powerful person in that temple. And it is the under-priestesses who are controlling her and the dark forces that are controlling her. And she is then visited by Ged, who's there on a mission to receive a, a part of a bracelet. And you get these extraordinary scenes set deep underground in darkness of flirtation between this magician and this priestess. You have a eunuch follower of the priestess whom she genuinely loves being pushed to his death into the the depths of the of this underworld. And the whole thing is just quite extraordinarily dark for a work that was being sold to ten year olds, read by ten year olds in that period. But yeah, it it, it she was an extraordinarily bold writer and she just did those things and certainly changed my view of what children's writing could be, even when I was a child. And the other thing about that that second one in the in the trilogy is that, that Ged isn't I mean he, he appears in it, but he isn't the protagonist. And that you you say in your piece that hero is a word that always set Le Guin's inner alarm bell ringing. And even in in the title of the, the the first one, he is it's a wizard of Earthsea. It's not the it's not like the Hobbit. Bilbo Baggins is the Hobbit, but but Ged is a wizard, and almost his mistake is to imagine himself to be the wizard and this exaggeration of his power. And then in the second novel, he's not even the the protagonist of it, and that was quite striking as well. That it was as I picked up the sequel and thought, well, where's Ged? And it's, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> boys, eh? Um, no, it's true, and but he—he's in some ways more than not the protagonist because he is this um, tempting, seducing voice in the dark, quite threatening actually, um, trying to persuade the priestess Tanar to um, give up her role uh, and betray everything that she's learned and come with him, and he's also trying in effect, to seduce her. So he's, he, you know, he's not just not the hero of it. He's, he, is a, he is another voice from the dark. You wrote a piece on Philip Pullman in the NRB a few years ago, and one of the questions you asked, well, semi-rhetorical question, why should saving the world depend on a heroic act? 
of self-renunciation. And you're, there you're talking about Pullman's, sort of his anti-Christian sensibility, which ends up being more Christian perhaps than he means it to be, that you still have this figure having to sacrifice themselves. And that sort of comes into Le Guin as well, doesn't it? And these, and actually throughout, we talk about the sort of characters from in children's fiction, that this idea of sacrifice sort of is very persistent through them. It is. And I wonder if Le Guin ever managed to resist that or reject it. I think she does, but it's still even vestigially there, I think, in the very, very late Earthsea novels, largely because, I mean, they're, they're written after a significant interval of, of you know, almost 20 years um, and 20 years of, of hard thinking. But they are about people who have, in some respects, already done the giving up. And so Ged has lost his powers. Tanar is no longer the priestess. She is effectively a farmer's wife. But I think what happens in those later books is that the focus on renunciation, straightforwardly an act of sacrifice that saves the world, is replaced by a very very deliberately different model of passive heroism you might call it, where your job is just to keep on going, keep looking after the goats, keep watering the, fr- the fruit trees. And that is very different from what happens at the end of, of Pullman's Dark Materials trilogy, where Pullman, having sort of set things up in a Blakeian way to suggest that uninhibited sexual contact between men and women without guilt is the answer to the oppressive world of the magisterium he then sort of backs away and says well actually my hero and heroine have to be separate they they have to they have to go off and and leave each other behind in order to keep keep the world wholesome and it's that kind of active renunciation with a positive effect that i think le guin is resisting in the later Earthsea books and resisting with a real power, just saying, you know, look, domesticity, a tedious married life, a concern for children, those things are all just what keep us going. And those are the things that fiction ought to come to value. Again, a very grown-up perspective. I was thinking there's the story, the one, the ones who walk away from... Omelas, is that how you pronounce it? Which is, um, if I remember right, it's a, it's a it's a society where it's a sort of a utopian society which depends on the the misery of a single child. Yes, it's a wonderful, very short story where she imagines. A, well, she she doesn't just imagine; she asks her readers to imagine. It's very important, actually. She asks her readers to imagine a place that's absolute happiness full of rejoicings and festivals and she says you know you're going to assume that there's going to be a king here galloping through but no there wasn't even a king it was all complete happiness but all of this depends on a child in a sort of three foot square room cupboard who is left entirely on its own i don't think the gender of the child is specified and the happiness of the society depends on nobody even uttering a kind word to the child. And some citizens of 
Omelas or Omelas, I think was her preferred pronunciation. Some happily decide that the greater good of the greater number makes it all fine, and others just walk away into an unknown space. And it's a great Le Guin fable, really, because it's, I mean, you could say it's having its cake and eating it in that you have the sacrificial victim enabling the happiness of the world, and you also have a critique of that fiction through the people who walk away. But it's it's a really pared-down imagining of that sacrificial narrative. And I think it also, in a way that's very typical of Le Guin and of her rather abrasive edge, which I think is a very important aspect of her fiction and of, I think also of her as, a, as an interviewee, actually. But it's very characteristic of her abrasive edge that you're made to think through that story about slavery and about the people who work in factories in order to enable contented capitalist happiness to go on. So she was able to take those sort of founding myths of children's fiction and give them a really unsettling bite. And she was able to bring that bite not just out, not just in the form of overt political statement, but through the art of fiction. So as I said, one of the things that matters about the um, Omela story is that it begins by telling its readers, well, this is what you want to imagine. This is the thing you, this is the world you want. You want a world of rejoicing and happiness. Well, if you want that, then can you also stomach this? And it's it's by allowing the story to develop in that way through teasing, enticing the imagination and then presenting it with the horror beneath she doesn't just make you think, she makes you feel about the consequences of being wealthy, happy, well-fed. And it's part of a much wider set of reflections in her long fiction and in her short stories about, about slavery and about the ways in which happy societies tend to generate their opposites or their dark side. Yes, yeah, so it's like a philosophical thought experiment but it but it's more than that because it is i mean they are stories at the same time aren't they that she's not presenting them as as in the trams hurtling down the track do you pull the lever or not it's not kind of the question isn't would do you walk or is it well i suppose she is asking the question should you walk away from omelas but at the same time it's it is it's a story not a not a philosophical thought experiment absolutely and the thing about philosophical thought experiments i won't say the thing about philosophers because that would be marginally unfair uh, the thing about philosophical thought experiments is that they work through being denuded of historical specificity and the thing about fiction is that potentially it is all, it, it is all human specificity it is all about the particulars and i think what Le Guin did with speculative fiction was to take the philosophical thought experiment aspect of speculative fiction and just make you feel it at every point. And so there aren't just bald philosophical dilemmas. There are actual human decisions involving dirty children with ulcerated legs. You know, it's, it's, it's not just bloodless. And from a wider perspective, that's what fiction does 
for its readers. It takes a large philosophical question and it gives it flesh and it pursues its the, the intricacies of that philosophical question in ways that make readers feel uncomfortable. And creating discomfort, I think, is one of Le Guin's really greatest fictional assets, actually. Just making you engage with something that makes you uneasy. She's just brilliant at doing that. And again, which makes you feel as if those children's stories aren't for children, but actually maybe it's quite important that children are made to feel uncomfortable too. Yeah. <laughs> Although maybe not when you're <laughs> trying to get them to sleep by reading them. But um It's true, it's true. Uh but even even then a little bit of I mean the the thing about Le Guin's kind of discomfort is that it is quite a it's balanced by a very strong sense of the domestic. So if you're made uneasy by Ged summoning up the nameless thing from the underworld You've also got perfectly imagined societies with a delightful, shining, humorous king in waiting. You know, there, there, there is always that balance. And she was a good Taoist, you know, for her balance was everything. And, and so balancing the discomfort with homeliness and to some extent suggesting that being homely, having a hearth, having a place where you can tell stories depends upon some degree of discomfort elsewhere. I mean, that, that, that was the kind of balance that she was trying to create, I think, throughout her career. So, I mean, do you think that the name of the, the world, the Earth Sea, I mean, there's something paradoxical about it, because is it Earth or is it Sea? I know it's an archipelago and it's also, it's a, you know, there are plenty of places in the northeast of England which have that form of name, Skipsy, Hornsey. But you'd see it as more, so I, uh, sorry, I imagined it, as partly as a sign that it, this place doesn't exist, that Earthsea is a is a sort of an impossible fantasy place. But maybe it's more a question of the balance, as you say. If, you know, if everything is in balance, then Earthsea is in the balance between Earth and Sea, between the elements. As it were. I think that's right. And she very strikingly said in response to a question about whether she'd ever sailed, said no, I wouldn't go near it. <laughs> but actually a lot of the um, action in Earthsea happens on the sea. There's a wonderful scene among raft dwellers, for example, but there are also quite terrifying storms and near sea wrecks and, and, and gigantic waves, as well as the dry land. And so she wanted the place and the name of the place, I think, to be a conjoining of opposites and a balancing between dry land where on the whole good things happen, bad things do also happen on, on her dry land, but on the whole, you know, it is home and sea where on the whole scary things happen. So it's a kind of balanced oxymoron, isn't it, really? Earth, sea is the name. Extraordinarily bold to take two such simple, radically opposed concepts and conjoin them in a name like that. And I sort of rather wish she'd done that a little bit more in her science fiction, where she tends to indulge a taste for really exotic names that don't always, to my ear, ring quite true. No, and can be hard, hard to pronounce and yeah. hard to remember. <laughs> um, but with that, the question of naming is, is an interesting one. Is it was especially the inertia that the importance of names that, as you said earlier, that his, his normal name is Sparrowhawk and Ged is his secret wizard name. And the idea that naming things, 
the, the magic the magic in earth isn't that right sort of consists in naming knowing the true names of things this idea that they're which has and you talk about in the piece how sort of post-structuralism happened at the soon after she wrote them and so and she came to have doubts about that the idea the magic of giving something its true name yes there's a very good film biography about her called the world's verse of Kayla Gwynn, which is which is still on the bbc i player it's really worth watching but it has a number of people talking about the books saying that the word magic was the thing that really got them when they first read Earthsea as as children. And there is some primitive delight in reading about magic happening in the medium which you're reading, you know, having words as things that can control and shape and create a world. And it obviously connects with her fascination with making worlds, calling worlds into being by describing them. And all of that is part of the wonder of the early Earthsea books. You know, there is a a secret name for a a pebble and there is a secret name for every drop of water in the sea. And once you know those names, you can control and manipulate. But it's, well, even in the early Earthsea books, that power of naming is equivocal in that you're supposed to know the names of things, be able to control things, and not do it unless you absolutely have to. So there is this sort of highly self-contained view of the magic of knowledge. It's not simply a riot of control. But by the later Earthsea novels, that magic is slipping away. And you can see her, I, I would be sure, responding to changes in hermeneutics and thinking about language through the period from... You know, 1965 up until 1990, and there is—I don't know—reading the later ones, the later Earthsea novels, it's hard not to miss that primitive delight in the magic of naming. She puts a lot of other things in its place, but it is—it is such a large part of the delight of those earlier books that uh, maybe it's the child in me. I, I do slightly lament its passing in the later books. Just everybody would like to be able to call something by its secret name and have it come to you. You know, who wouldn't like to be able to call a sparrowhawk to come and settle on your shoulder? And there is, you know, that wish fulfillment. But with her, always the wish is paired by a negative consequence. Well, if you did that to a sparrowhawk, what would the sparrowhawk be losing, quite apart from its freedom? But the, I mean, another thing about this, sort of the magic, the magic of children's books, and the idea, because the, I mean, certainly the those three Earths, the first three Earthsea books that were always in my house, and I assume that my, I mean, long before any, my older sister was old enough to read them, so I assume that my mother bought them and read them for herself. But they were sort of always there, and with so many for me, children's books were, so sort of you had the the magical names of the of the books and of the authors, but. Because you grew up in a house where some of these books were being written, didn't you? Because your, your your mother um, was Diana Wynne Jones, and so I mean, sort of knowing up to a point how how these books were were made, did that have any uh, effect on your sense of them? It's a good question. I mean, when I was growing up, my mum was 
being a mum a lot of the time. And so she didn't really start publishing in a serious way until I was about 10. So the, the, the sort of visible evidence of making <laughs> didn't impinge too much early on. She was, she was sort of having fun with us and, and sometimes not having fun with us. We were three boys who were very hard work a lot of the time. But when she really started to write, it was, <laughs> it was a bit like living with a, a dervish or something because she'd periodically go into complete lockdown where she would sit hunched over her pad of writing paper with her cigarette and her coffee and just be completely lost in a in a world for you know a couple of weeks at a time so i suppose i saw the psychological and social processes that go along with creating alternative worlds which which you know were partly shutting yourself out of what was immediately around you and because she wrote in this very um, intensive, inspired way, she was quite defensive about connecting her fiction to other people's fiction. So although we had, you know, pretty much everything that Puffin published from the late 60s through to the 80s in the house, that was the library, as it were, and she was she was she was the artist. There was very little sense actually of, of crossover between the two, and she was pretty fierce when it was suggested that the books in the library were really feeding into the the books that were coming out from the demon within her. She she was uh, a creative demiurge, really, and who who didn't want to see influences, but she was certainly influenced by Le Guin and. There are quite a lot of parallels, I think. I mean, my mother was never political in the way that Le Guin was, and was never didn't didn't have that edge of of zeal about politics that Le Guin has. But she was passionately concerned with with fairness, and that extended to gender politics. She mostly wrote about male protagonist or was mostly charmed by her own male male protagonist but she increasingly wrote about women and by the time the second Earthsea series is appearing in, in the 90s Diana Wynne-Jones was writing things like A Sudden Wild Magic which have got a very strong role for male uh, for female agency in, in that a group of women are sent on a mission of destruction to a an exclusively male centre of magecraft in a little mini-universe that is sucking all the ideas out of our universe. And the, and the job of the women is to seduce the mages as quickly as possible and reduce them to uh, subservience to them. And it's a comic version, in some ways, of what Le Guin was trying to do in a much more sober way in the later Ursi books. I mean, it's trying to find a way of getting beyond the notion that male mages with their enormous staffs are the people who control the world and, and, and trying to see how sex and gender politics could fit into that form of children's fantasy. So there are lots of connections, but they're probably connections that I would want to see rather than con- connections that my mother would have wanted to confess. But the books that you talk about, the, the library of the Puffin books and then the books that she wrote, but did her books end up in the library? Did you read them? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, I, I was always a very pure, very purist. I, I, I didn't like really reading them in TypeScript, and so the, um, I'd wait till they came out. I, I softened over that later in life. But uh, yeah, it was always it was always wonderful to have you know the book, the copy you know inscribed to you, um, sitting next to the Narnia books or whatever. I mean, nothing nothing beats that feeling. And it was, I mean, it's very curious to read works of fantasy which are about alternative universes but where from time to time you can recognize the people in them you know the worst possible moment is where you recognize yourself and you think god does she really think i'm like that (laughs) but uh so the um her books were a sort of education in the ways in which for me anyway the ways in which fantasy can start from direct experience of reality and then transform that world or people that she's met into something uh, wild and strange yeah i remember um some years ago saying to you how that dog's body was one of my favorite books when i was <laughs> about 10 and you said something along the lines of you should have and that's a story about um it's i'm probably gonna get this wrong having said it's one of my favorite books but i haven't read it for almost well 35 years the um the dog star comes to earth more or less that right that's serious there's a there's, yeah yeah and is embodied in a in a in a puppy that then becomes a family dog and i'm talking to you about this and you and you said to me you should have met the dog he was based on um <laughs> the dog he was based on was called caspian after the prince in narnia how incestuous is that but yeah he was a wonderful dog uh but who looked nothing like the uh the dog in dog's body so it was caspian but caspian was a golden labrador and the the uh the dog in dog's body is 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 sort of um, well has spaniel esque plumes and uh, red fur and has a sort of red setterish vibe to, to him a lot of the time. But yeah, he was he was a great dog, <laughs> uh, transformed into a star. Yeah, but I not that so, so that sort of as it were, knowing being able to see as it were, know where the the, the story came from. In a sense, it came from this the family dog, and how that affects. Does that make it harder to read the book as a to sort of lose yourself in the in the in the fantasy elements of the book, or is that too I don't know literal minded or something? I I don't think it ever really made a, made problems. I mean, the area of her fiction that was where the relationship between the fiction and the life was was quite difficult was she often writes about terrible mothers and um evil old witches who usually are malevolent and it's a great sort of diana Wynne jones trope and it straightforwardly was all about her mother who i actually very much liked as a a sort of grandchild one step away from uh the, the very difficult relationship between my mother and her mother and there are times with for example Black Mariah or Aunt Mariah, as it was called when it was published in America, where the sort of directness and cruelty with which she represented her own mother was pretty hard to bear, actually, for me, thinking of my grandmother as as, as being the sort of object of the fiction. But with 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 the dog, it was pure joy. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he he was he was made immortal, and and that's great. Yeah, and sort of in your broader sort of thinking about criticism and biographical or non-biographical approaches to criticism does does that i mean your mother having written having been a writer does, does that affect 
your urge to read other books biographically or not? Or is that, <laughs> or do you maintain the, well, the, the Olympian loftiness of a. Yeah, I mean, I, I was trained as a critic in Cambridge with by pupils of Empson and Levis, really, straightforwardly. And we were pretty much forbidden from thinking about anything other than the verbal icon and, um, you know, the work of art as an autonomous structure, perfectly delicately balanced in itself. And um, bi- biography was something that um, certainly was was sort of separate and probably vulgar to the majority of those who taught me. And I do quite strongly want to believe in the autonomy of fiction. And fantasy, and fantasy for children in particular, is a sort of extreme instance of, of where you would hope the mind just makes another world out of its own resources. But, you know, all that austere, high aesthetic whatnot is severely qualified when you've seen your dog become a book. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it does make a difference. It does make a difference. It makes me me think about writing as being rooted not just in a desire to create an alternative world, but also a desire to transform the world that you have experienced. And that form of transformation can be a sort of loving transformation of people that you know or admire. Uh, And it can also sometimes, as it is for Le Guin quite often, an attempt to transform the reality that you know into something that you would much rather it were um, in in a utopian way. But even when you're writing utopian fiction, you you sort of necessarily have to root it in the things you know and the things you experience. And one of the reasons why working, reading on, reading through Ursula Le Guin for this piece was so uh, sort of curious for me is that she was the daughter of a very notable academic anthropologist and his wife who, who wrote... Uh, a best-selling sort of anthropological account of of, of uh, the last member of a Native American tribe, and so she's, you know, Le Guin came from a kind of writing background that I can very much identify, and so I can see her as somebody who is, you know, using her family experience and personal experience in making fiction, and I can see that in a very direct and and, and personal kind of way because I don't see her background as being mutatis mutandis, all that different from being from, from my background, although she's, you know, cr- creating things in a, in a way that I couldn't dream of doing. Colin Burrow, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Colin Burrow's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with the last of Perry Anderson's three essays on the EU, Colin Tobin on Pope Francis, and a diary by Long Ling on visiting a Taoist temple. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. The LRB also has a new twice-weekly email newsletter, Paper Cuts, featuring a piece from the paper's archive with a tall tale or incident from history that happened on that date. To sign up to it, go to lrb.me 
forward slash papercuts. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.